Good morning, church, or good evening, whenever you're listening to this. This is our last sermon in Exodus, looking at the patience and presence of God. And, you know, the last few weeks we've all remarked on the irony of preaching on God's presence and patience at a time like this, because we miss the presence of our friends and family and community, and we are cooped up and we need to be more patient than ever. But here we are. And honestly, I think we're all realizing that we need God's presence more than ever. As we've looked at the second half of Exodus, we've seen that God saved Israel out of slavery, but Israel still needed to be saved. This is our problem. We are a people that need to be saved. Christ has saved us and we continue to need him to work in us. Israel grumbles, rejects God, makes an idol of a golden calf, but amazingly, even as God's people are bitter, frustrated, and disloyal to God, God is patient with them. And he gives them his present. You know, despite many opportunities for God to reasonably leave Israel, God stays with them and fulfills his promise to dwell among them. And that's where we are today. Today, the final passage of Exodus is what everything has been building to. God's presence dwelling within the people. The real emphasis is not on the people who need to be saved, but on the God who is patient with a grumbling and bitter people. God is faithful to us despite our failures, and God will not abandon us. So as we look at this passage, we're going to consider three things. The glory, the guidance, and the word. The glory, the guidance, and the word. So first, the glory. So this is going to be our longest point, by the way. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this is the key to understanding the story of the Exodus. It's, it's such a simple statement, but it is so important. Remember, the Exodus is the fundamental story of the Israelites. It's the most important story of who they are, and it ends with the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, which is the, the tent of worship. That's what the tabernacle is. So this little episode at the end, you know, it's the kind of thing you could just you could just skim over. You're speed reading through your Bible, and you're, boom, in 15 seconds, you'll be done with Exodus. And, of course, your reward is Leviticus. That's another story. Anyways, but this last bit, it's the key to everything. It's the key to the fundamental story for the Israelites. So, so what does it mean? We started Exodus months ago saying, God is setting his people free from real flesh and blood on this earth in justice and evil. Pharaoh is a real bad dude doing real bad things. Economic exploitation, murdering babies, bad stuff in real world. When Israelites look back and say, God rescued us and set us free, they're specifically talking about the real in this world, social and economic oppression. And when I preached our first sermon on Exodus months ago, I said, God cares about real injustice on this earth. And he does God knows the cries and the agonies of his people. God hears and feels their cries for help. God personally feels injustice and he hates it. God cares about when we're sinned against. God cares about real problems and real injustice. But you can't stop there. So in chapter 3, God said he has come down to deliver them. Right away, God comes down as a result of their cries. God comes and sets them free and takes them as his own. 
God dwells with his people, spiritually present, and now he dwells in the tabernacle. The most important thing God does is dwell with his people. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you realize how many chapters of Exodus are spent describing the tabernacle and how to make it? There are several chapters of God telling Moses, make it this way in excruciating detail. And then several chapters saying, and the people made it exactly like he just said. It's all the excruciating detail again. They say it all again. It's very repetitive. But you repeat everything if you want to emphasize. This is important. Or how about this? When God reveals his glory to Moses in chapter 34, what did God say? What attributes did God highlight? Because he didn't say, I am the Lord who liberated you, though he could have. He didn't say, I am the Lord and get against injustice. Though, of course, he is. We just said that. No, God describes his holiness. He is merciful. He is just. He keeps his promises. He is full of steadfast love. He forgives sins. God hates injustice, but that's only the start of the story. Defeating injustice is the first thing God does. The last thing God does is fill the tabernacle with his glory. And you see, God is against injustice because he is for his creation. God is against injustice because God is for peace and wholeness. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And, you know, it means a lot more than just no fighting. It means the world ordered as it ought to be. Shalom means relationships as they should be. Shalom is everything in its right place. Everything is God intended, which ultimately means everything in right relationship with God. I recently read a story of somebody who was in the army, and he described what it was like when they finally learned to march together in unison. You know, he said it was like a symphony all of a sudden, all the instruments playing together. And he said it was it was like a spiritual experience being part of a unit that worked together flawlessly, beautifully. Like he lost himself in this greater good. That is a small picture of shalom, of what it's like when all creation fits together as it should. God rescued Israel so his glory could dwell with them. He defeated injustice. He liberated them from slavery. He brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground so that he could dwell with them. So that the merciful, holy, just, steadfast, glorious God could personally dwell with them. That's why God rescued them. That's why God defeated real world, flesh and blood, real dude, Pharaoh. And that's why Jesus rescued you. Jesus forgives you so that he can dwell with you, which really means so that you can dwell with him. And, you know, sometimes as Christians, I think we forget that. And people look at Christianity and they wonder, so what? So what about Christianity? And, you know, maybe we answer with, uh, get your sins forgiven. But a lot of people have no conception of sin and what it means to have sins forgiven so our friends or family, they, they respond with, okay, why? why? Why do I want that? And the right answer is to explain our broken relationship with a good and holy God and the cosmic disconnectedness 
from the source of all beauty, goodness, and truth? The right answer is to offer the rich, full, eternal, soul-satisfying relationship with the creator and giver of life who loves us. But I think instead, sometimes we respond with something like, get your sins forgiven uh, so you don't go to hell. And then, you know, we're surprised when they roll their eyes and ignore us and walk away because now they just think God has an anger problem. They've totally missed the point of Christianity. That answer doesn't make sense. Or, and this might be worse, we say, get your sins forgiven and you'll feel better. You know, maybe we don't use exactly those words, but we say, you won't feel guilt. The pain will go away. You'll find healing, which are all ways of saying, you'll be happy. And that's therapeutic theology. That's not God's glory theology. Get forgiveness because it's good for your mental health, like exercise and a healthy diet and a walk in the sun. And look, for sure, there are tremendous benefits to living for Jesus. Amen to that. But never confuse the benefits of the gospel for the gospel. Never confuse the benefits of the good news for the good news. The offer of the gospel is not cosmic therapy. The offer of the gospel is we get God. Benefits come along with that because God is good. But, you know, the so-called benefits aren't the point. God is. We shouldn't be approaching Jesus as a better drug, a better diet, a better version of what the world is selling. No, the gospel is you get God. The gospel is not get forgiveness and you'll feel better and God will give you stuff. No, get forgiveness and you get God. God is the end game. God is sufficient. God set Israel free from slavery and he could stop there. He could stop the story and say, look, that's a big gift. Now live happily ever after. I mean, you feel better already, right? You're not being oppressed, not slaves. But God wants to be with his people. God doesn't merely want to give us blessings like water and manna and cool healings and miracles. God wants us to have him because only God leads to wholeness and satisfaction and real peace. Only God brings shalom because God is what we were made for. The problem is a lot of us don't think what we need is God's glory. We, we go to God because we want stuff from God. God's glory, whatever. We want God's goodies. Give us the peace because we don't like being anxious. Give us the prosperity because we don't like being in need. Or, you know, we might even say give us holiness even. Because the consequences of our character flaws, honestly, are killing us. So, you know, holiness, please. So maybe we want God's goodies more than God. Or on the other hand, we reject God because we want stuff God says we can't have or shouldn't have. We think, you know what will make me happy? Living for myself. We just don't call it greedy or selfish because that sounds bad. We call it, uh, you only live once or you do you or, or just, I deserve this. Either way, it's just another name for selfishness and greed and it won't deliver. Or we think power over others will make us happy or sex outside of marriage will make us happy, or abusing drugs or alcohol or, or food. Whatever it is, God says we, we can't have it, we shouldn't have it, but we want it. Either way, whether we want God's goodies more than God, or if we want goodies God forbids, we are dead wrong about what is really going to bring us satisfaction. 
What we really want, what all our longings point toward, is God's glory in our life. What we really need is God, but we think the things in this world will give us what we think we want. We think they'll provide the glory only God provides. But listen to me, anything you want in life, anything that isn't God, it won't deliver. No family member, no career, no vacation, no success, no comfort, no security is what you think it is. You won't have joy in those things. What you really want is God. Every longing in this earth points to a longing that can only be satisfied in God. And if you spend your time searching and hoping for anything else, you might be destroying your relationship with the one that can really satisfy you. Do you know what the Hebrew word for glory means? Weightiness. God's glory is his weight. So when God's glory fills the tabernacle, it's the weight of God occupying that space. And do you know why that's the Hebrew word? Because everything else in this world is flimsy chaff that the wind blows away. It won't last. But God is the ultimate weight. God's glory lasts. It suffices. It satisfies. And nothing else does. Nothing else has mass. Live for pleasure. And you're destroying your relationship with the one who is your true spouse, Jesus. Live for comfort. And you're destroying your relationship with the comforter. The Holy Spirit. Live for security and you're destroying your relationship with the one who holds the world in his hands and says, I will never forsake you. Death is not the end of you. God gives Israel his glory and God gives us his glory and that's the best gift we could ever receive. So first, the glory. Second, the guidance. Our passage continues. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. God gives us his presence and God guides us with his presence because we have somewhere to go. God used his presence to lead Israel. God's plan wasn't for Israel to stand camped in the wilderness. Yes, God was with them for a generation in the wilderness. That's been an important theme in this series. When we are in the wilderness, we have God. But God's plan was to make Israel into a blessing for the world. So God led them to the promised land. God led them in the ways of holiness and righteousness and justice. God had to make them into a nation that would reveal his glory to the nations. And when you become a Christian, God doesn't just move in with you. So you can stay put where you are in the desert. God sends his Holy Spirit to us to guide us. And that means you have to let, we have to let God guide us. Uh, so two points on that. First, this means we will act differently because we are responsive to the Holy Spirit. The other day I got off a call and my wife asked how it went. And I said, I was full of the Holy Spirit. The other person thanked me for being so patient and gentle and kind. My wife and I, we both laugh because we know in myself, I'm not like that. If I'm patient, it's because I was full of the Spirit. If I'm gentle, it's because I'm full of the Spirit. Other people might naturally be patient and gentle because of their dispositions, but not me. 
Now, you can always resist the Holy Spirit. If you want to be able to say, I was full of the Spirit and you were able to accomplish something you never would otherwise, then you have to obey. You have to obey his, his leading. The Holy Spirit rarely plays you like a puppet. It's not really his way of doing things. He leads you and you obey him as he leads you. So first, we're going to behave differently as we're responsive. Second, you obey him. Right, you, you might notice I just said that twice, obey and obey. Um, but here's what I mean. You know how the Holy Spirit leads because you know how the Holy Spirit leads. I'm having some fun with this repetitive stuff. It's the podcast, so I can do whatever I want. Um, all right. You know how the Holy Spirit is leading you in a particular moment because you know how the Holy Spirit leads in general. Think about it. How did I know that the Holy Spirit was leading me to be patient? Because I pick up the Bible and I read God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit and it tells me the fruit of the Spirit is patience and kindness and peace. God's word tells me this is what God desires. We've, we've got a list in Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit. But you know everything in Scripture tells us what God delights in, what God wills for us, and how God wants us to behave. The Spirit will never guide you to do something contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture that the Spirit desires. So we let God guide us by letting Scripture guide us. And this also means if you're anxious, wondering, how is God leading me? What should I do? What does God want for me? And, you know, maybe you don't hear God speaking to you and leading you in the moment. Well, start here. Go to Scripture. God's Word tells us exactly what He desires for us. God's Word directs our daily steps for faithfulness and, and moral behavior because that's the most important part for us to do. And it's literally the Word of God. You reading the Bible is God speaking to you. So don't be anxious. Read your Bible and obey. Now this is the thing. Sometimes obedience is as simple as responding to the gentle leading of the Spirit. But maybe not most of the time. Sometimes it's a battle of the wills. It's me digging in my heels, feeling the tug of what I want, and God's Spirit speaking to me, are you going to obey Jesus right now or crucify him again? And maybe the Spirit is gentle. Maybe he's forceful. But he's throwing down a gauntlet too. And in those moments, obeying the Spirit, letting the Spirit guide you doesn't feel easy. But those are the moments that are the most important. Almost by definition, when our wants are at odds with God's wants, that is the time when it is most important that we heed God's guidance. Now, this is an important point. What makes us distinctive is that God guides us. This is why Moses said, God, if you won't personally go with us, then don't send us. Moses' point was, what makes God's people distinct is God, God's presence, dwelling in the midst of his people. That was the singular defining feature of God's people, not because they've earned it, but because of grace. This is what made Israel a distinct people. 
it wasn't that they were bigger and stronger than anybody else. It wasn't that on their own they were more moral or ethical. It was God's presence. And that is the singular defining feature of Christians today. We aren't better than anybody else. On our own, on our own, we don't live better lives. On our own, we aren't more moral or decent. On our own, there's nothing distinctive about us. Um, you know, and in fact, could you even begin to describe culturally what a Christian is like? And, you know, this is not really true of any other global religion. There is no overarching global Christian culture. You don't meet a Christian in the world and recognize they're a Christian based on their culture. There are Christians spread almost uniformly throughout every continent. Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, I'm sure I left some out. Um, Christians that are rich and poor, educated and not, black and white and brown. Uh, but Christians do not share a common culture. Chinese Christians, Nigerian Christians, Ethiopian Christians, American Christians, you know, we don't listen to the same music or have the same mannerisms. We worship in very different ways. We pray in very different ways. Uh, what unites us is not our culture. In fact, here's one I think it's a fascinating example. Even in two very similar countries, the U.S. and Scotland, um, I knew I heard a story of a pastor who spent a lot of time visiting Scotland, and he got to know the very serious Bible-believing people there. And in the U.S., the Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians that he knew all tended to be associated with one side of the political spectrum. But what shocked him was in Scotland, it was exactly the opposite. Christians in both countries, they loved God and obeyed Jesus, and both of them, Americans and Scots, ordered their lives according to the gospel. And in one case, they came to politics as conservatives because of their beliefs, and in the other case, they came to politics as liberals because of their beliefs. And this American pastor, he realized that they both came to their political positions because they took the gospel seriously. And that just meant in each case, it led them to different emphases and different expressions of the same beliefs. And he, he found it, it didn't shake his political convictions, but it, it dramatically humbled how he held them. So, you know, you can't even say among Western white Christians, there's a single Christian politics. Uh, okay, so what's my point? The thing that unites every single Christian is this one thing alone. We belong to and follow Jesus. And that is really important in our country, especially right now. Because listen, you, if you are a Christian, are more deeply united to a Christian single mother raising seven kids in sub-Saharan Africa than you are to somebody in your neighborhood with the same education, same culture, same background, likes the same movies and books and, and same politics, but doesn't share your faith. Your faith more deeply unites you to Christians across the globe than to anybody else, despite the enormous cultural differences. The person who votes just like you but doesn't share your faith is less united to you than the fellow believer who votes differently. And that means that in the church, where we have people of all types, and it is messy 
Church is so messy. That's why we must pursue unity and love above any possible division. Our allegiances are to the God who saves us by grace, not our favorite cultural way of doing things, uh, not our favorite ways of, of doing worship, not our favorite political parties, not whatever it is. What makes us distinctive is that the Holy Spirit guides us. And if the Spirit desires unity, and he does, will we follow him in being united? Will we obey the Holy Spirit when he guides us toward greater unity, even when it hurts? So, that's the glory and the guidance. Finally, the word. John chapter 1 says this about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, that word dwelt means dwell as in a tent, in camp. Or you could say, have my tabernacle. So we could say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is what that means. Jesus came in the flesh. God came in the flesh and made himself a tabernacle in Jesus. And John says, we have seen his glory. The glory of God dwelled with us and the tabernacle was Jesus. In Exodus 40, God's glory comes down and dwells in the tabernacle. But the ultimate dwelling of God's glory was when Jesus came down and walked among us as a man. Remember how I said that the point of the Exodus story is that God's glory dwelled among the people? If you want to make sense of the story of your life, Jesus is the defining moment. The point of all history is that Jesus would come. Jesus coming is the defining moment in all of history. Everything built up to that. Everything God has ever done was building up to and preparing us to receive the glory of his son. In Exodus, God set his people free from slavery by defeating an evil ruler, by striking down Pharaoh's firstborn son, and then God's glory filled the tabernacle. But in Jesus, God's glory came to this earth and God set his people free from slavery to sin by disarming the rulers and the authorities, by defeating sin and evil. But he won that victory because we rejected him and he died. Because we struck down God's firstborn son. This Sunday is Palm Sunday. And this means we celebrate when Jesus entered Jerusalem to a chorus of praises. People welcomed him. People wanted him there. They were hopeful. But it didn't last very long. In Exodus, God's presence enters the tabernacle and dwells with the people. Everything he promised, the distinction of God's people, but they would reject him again. The people in Jerusalem would reject Jesus in just a few days. They wanted Jesus as long as he fit their agenda, as long as his benefits outweighed the costs, as long as his stuff seemed good enough. But when they realized what Jesus was claiming about himself, about them, about the cost of following him, they rejected him. And we, in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, we constantly reject our Lord and Savior when we disobey him. Jesus entered Jerusalem so that he could defeat sin, 
save his people, and dwell with us, so that he could make us his tabernacle. The mistake of the people then was to reject the presence of God and not to let him guide them. Don't make that mistake. Friends, God's ways are higher than our ways, and that means sometimes stuff happens that makes no sense, and we don't like it, and it's no fun. And it's from God. And we want more from God. We want more gifts from God. We even ask for good things like peace and patience and prophecy and hope and comfort and miracles and holiness and victory over sin. And the good giver gives those things according to his wisdom in his time. Sometimes that looks like a man at night crying in a garden crying out, let this cup pass before me, but in faith declaring, your will be done. Sometimes it's the cold echo of a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes it looks like a crucified Savior. Don't reject God's presence and his guidance just because things don't make sense to you. As we head into Good Friday and then into Easter, Remember what it cost God to save you and why Jesus had to do that. And God's presence will be with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you send your glory to be with us and to guide us. We thank you that you sent that glory ultimately in Jesus and that you sent him to live a perfect life and to go to the cross and to die the death that we deserve, but also to rise to life so that we can live in him. God, I pray that we would desire you, God, the giver more than the gifts. I pray that we would know that in you is found perfect peace and righteousness and holiness and beauty and goodness and truth. God, I pray that we would look at Jesus, that we would let the working of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts drive us to you to receive your forgiveness, to receive your guidance, and that we would obey and that we would have life to the fullest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.